this evening is February 9th. It's a Wednesday night. We're continuing our messages in John. We're going to be in John 7 tonight, and the title of the message will be The Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus in John 7. So, everybody in John 7? Yes. You'll remember in John 6, one of the key themes that... Uh, that we talked about was that Jesus was the Word of God, that you had to desire Him like you desired food, and that was a consistent theme. You see that show back up in John 7 some. But then this last Sunday, we, uh, we talked about capturing our thoughts and making them obedient to our knowledge of Jesus. Did anybody, or maybe it's just me because I preached about it, but I caught myself between Sunday and now having a thought that I shouldn't have and thought, uh-uh, that is contrary to what I know about Jesus and throwing it down. It's been the most useful thing. Uh, I just encourage you to put into practice what we're preaching. It really will work. And if you're sitting in these seats, since we're called life-changing ministries, I'm assuming that you're sitting in these seats because you're willing for your lives to change. Don't get upset if I push you a little bit. I'm going to. And it's okay if you get upset. I figured Jesus brought you here, but don't stay upset. Okay, we're in John 7. And uh, we are picking up in verse 1. It says, After this, and the after this is his time in Galilee and Capernaum teaching. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Uh, there's so much in this chapter that it's going to be difficult to confine it to a, a consistent thought tonight, and I'm going to do my best to cover the tabernacles, and we may go over this chapter a couple times. But do you know that in the very beginning here, we have a statement about Jesus purposely staying away from Judea? Sometimes when we're Christians, especially young Christians, young in age and young in your walk with God, we have this idea not necessarily lock the doors, don't have to wear your seatbelt, doesn't matter where you go or what you do because God is with me. I'm God's man of power for the hour. No harm will befall me. And we will quote the Psalms, you know, if you dwell in the shadow of the Almighty and a thousand fall at one side, a thousand at the right. But we see Jesus use prudence sometimes. There are times in the Scripture where the crowd desired to harm Him, but because He was in the perfect will of God, doing what God told Him to do when He told Him to do it, they had no power over Him. But this is an example where he, he purposely stayed out of harm's way. It wasn't time for him to die. It was not the Passover that he was supposed to lay down his life. So he didn't go where they wanted to kill him. Now, later the Lord leads him to a place where they want to kill him. And sometimes they try and can't. And on one time they succeed. But I just want to encourage you, don't leave your sound mind at the altar. You know, We live in Houston. It's a high crime area. It's not a lack of faith to lock your doors. You know? As some things are just good prudence in the kingdom. And he purposely stayed away from that area. Second thing that I wanted to point out was that his brothers here are giving him advice. In the kingdom, there's never any shortage of people that want to give you advice. In Jesus' life, it was no different. What is interesting about this is we find out that his brothers were not believers, and it says it in this chapter. Uh, somebody told me this week, and it was... I mean this in the best possible way. I mean, this was a good thing that they said to me. Said, you know, Eric, the message, and I didn't say it quite like this, but this was the gist of it. The message that you preached on transubstantiation, I, I got a lot of, out of it. I liked it. But the people that need to hear it the most uh, would probably be alienated in the first uh, couple minutes of it. Uh, I've, I've taken that to heart. That's true. Um, if you want to reach somebody, it's not always good to slap them right in the face with the truth. Well, Jesus' brothers are here. They have um, their will for Jesus. And he's not at all going to listen. He does not yield to it. But what he also does not do is sit down and um, explain and teach and everything else to them. He simply states the truth. He moves on and he lets his life witness to them. He's going to let his truth point out their error. And there's a lot to be said from that. That's a lesson that I'm still learning. I could teach all day long about why Romanism is wrong, and I did a couple messages ago. Here, when I see Jesus' brothers, it's hard for me not to 
go off on a tangent because there's a church that's worldwide with a fifth of the world's population in its grasp that teaches Jesus didn't have brothers. When we see right here, he does. And the way they interpret this is brothers meaning disciples. Well, you can't be a disciple if you don't believe. And it clearly says here in a few minutes that they did not believe until after he was raised. So we know that the interpretation is wrong. I want to encourage you a message that I'm learning before we go on. That is, if you point out the truth, the error will be self-evident. We don't have to harp on the error, even though I do frequently. <laughs> okay? Are you all with me with that? you understand what I'm saying? I'm telling on myself a little bit, but it's for your benefit. Okay, so we've got the brothers, and it is what feast? What's verse 2 say? What feast is it? Tabernacles. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Were there not disciples in Galilee? What did they mean? So that your disciples may see. Want to dispel another common uh, misnomer about Israel. When you've watched Jesus' movies in the past, when you've read the gospel and thought about the Jews, you think of a nation that hates Jesus. And one reason that you tend to think about that is because John tends to lump them together. The Jews did this. The Jews did that. And we forget in John's writing that when he says the Jews, he's talking about their representative leadership. Because there is proof throughout the book of John that Jesus had disciples everywhere. Jesus is in Galilee, not far from Capernaum right now. He has disciples there. And his brothers are telling him, you should go to the uh, feast in Jerusalem so that your disciples there can see. So what does that tell you? If we're in North Israel and there's disciples and they're trying to get him to go to South Israel where there are disciples, Jesus had disciples all over Israel, didn't he? He was very, very well received. This is why when we get to the triumphal entry, there is a nation there yelling for him, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. The nation embraced him. The leadership did not. And unfortunately, the nation yielded to the leadership. I hope that will begin to set straight in your mind that Jews were not a God-hating people. The gospel was prepared for them. Their leadership was hardened for your benefit. The same way Pharaoh was hardened for Israel's benefit. We'll cover all of that a lot more in another time, but I just wanted to take that opportunity to point that out. Here is the worldly wisdom that the uh, brothers have. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things... Show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast, because for me the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now, did he say he would never go to this feast? Not at all. He just said, right now, the time hadn't yet come. Okay, He's not saying that it won't come. He said, I'm not going at your prompting. You can go do anything you want to do at any time because the world accepts you because you are a part of the world. There's a whole message right here, guys. When you see the news media flock to religious leaders, perfect acceptance... Everybody in one accord, uh, even if you're not a member of the church, but speak well of them. The world loves its own. But when you do what Jesus does, when your very life testifies that what the world does is evil and that the world is evil, they will hate you. That's why the Bible says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. I'm just telling you that so that you'll have eyes to see. Okay? We don't have to go any further with that than we did. The prompting of the Holy Spirit, we, we got this in prophecies today during worship. The prompting of the Holy Spirit is what is to guide our actions. It's what to show us what step is next. Not the advice of others, not committees, not anything else. It's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived this way. His apostles lived this way. He said, well, Jesus didn't take their advice because they were lost. Well, that may be true. But Paul didn't take Agabus' advice in Acts 19 either, and he wasn't lost. And what Agabus prophesied to him was correct. The man whose hands were bound with this belt will be bound in Jerusalem and mistreated. It was all true. But Paul didn't stay there with him and refused to go. He followed the leading of the Spirit. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay about that passage. 
What I'm trying to tell you is one of the rules of being a Christian is that God's will comes before everything else. And it is not uncommon at all for your very family to be the first ones that do not understand. Jesus, look, let me give you some advice, man. I know you're the older brother and you're doing all these miracles and stuff, but come on, let's use our noodle. If you want to be somebody famous, which was never Jesus' goal, you need to go to where all the people are. Then they can see these great things you do, and then you can be somebody famous. Why did they care? They didn't believe he was who he said he was anyway. Why did they even care? And yet they were giving advice. Now, as we leave this subject, I want to note something. Verse 10 says, However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? This feast was an important thing. It was God's will that Jesus go. But apparently the Holy Spirit or the Father had not yet revealed to Jesus that it was the time to go. Now, we're going to turn to Leviticus 23, and y'all can be turning there. And uh, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Uh, You're looking for the 23rd chapter. But Jesus made a point not to go when his lost brothers told him to go, but then he went when the Father told him to go. This is not all that different than John 2. Woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And then he goes ahead and does a miracle. You know, sometimes Jesus makes it a point to show I'm not being directed by my family, not by anybody else, but by the Father. Even when it seems that their instruction was somewhat right. Why do you think John would include that? Why do you think he's including that over and over and over? We see it a couple more times in the Scripture. He's trying to teach you something. What everybody else thinks is not important. What your own family members think is not important. The favor of the Father is what you're after. Are you all in Leviticus 23? This feast is important. I've got to get to Leviticus 23 here. In the Thompson chain, Leviticus 23 is found on page 137. When we talk about the feast of the Jews, how many feasts were there? Seven. Seven's the number of perfection, completion in the Bible. Now, what is neat about the feast, and I don't have time to teach on all the feasts tonight, but I can give you a crash course, okay? Is that there were four feasts in the spring and a remaining three towards the end of the year, uh, the winter months. What do we call that? Fall. And... uh, There was a long gap between them. And most Bible scholars believe that in these feasts, and I'm one of them, we see the prophetic calendar for God. That these feasts were not just feasts for Israel. In fact, we're going to read that they're not just feasts for Israel, but that the feasts themselves belong to the Lord and that they were to be commemorated for all the generations to come because they teach something about God. You remember the uh, brothers wanted Jesus to go on a certain day, and he said no. And then later the father tells him to go, and he goes. He showed up on a certain day for a reason. And I'll be honest, I don't have all of these details worked out yet, so I'm not going to teach it. I'm just going to tell you there was a reason. But what we're going to read about this feast is on each day specific things occurred. And apparently it was important that Jesus showed up right in the middle of the feast. Now, I know that there was a different number of bulls sacrificed on that day, a different number of goats than on any other day. And I suspect that there's a message there. But... There was a reason, and in time it will become clear to us. But about this prophetic calendar, starting with the Passover, what preceded Passover? Anybody? Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the time period where everybody would get their house right. They'd go through their house inspecting it, ready to bring the Passover lamb into their lives. Okay? Take a rocket scientist to figure out what that is. We would follow that with a Feast of first fruits. Just like Jesus was the first fruit among those that are being raised from the dead, this was the sheaf that you would take out of the field and wave and say, wow, this first piece is proof there's more like it out there. So we go through three feasts right there. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, followed by the Feast of Passover, followed by the Feast of first fruits, and then what's the fourth feast? Pentecost. Feast of Weeks. There would be some time period later And then we would have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, it occurred, and it occurred on Pentecost, and that was a feast of ingathering. 
So you would have a time period where everybody gets their house in order. You would have a time period where everybody received the lamb. You would have a time period of first fruit. You would see the examples in the church raise up. Then you would have a time period of ingathering. Then there would be a long six-month period. What six the number of? Sin and man, right? Six-month period before we hit any more feast. And you know what feast you hit next? Feast of Trumpets. This would announce something's fixing to occur. Day of Atonement, a whole nation would be cleansed in a single day. Followed by the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles is going to be our subject here. I fail that to tell you, we have four feasts in the spring. Four feasts that most people believe have spiritually been fulfilled. Followed by a long period where you're wondering what's going on. <laughs> a second harvest is still yet come to come. The second harvest... The second groupings of feasts are announced by a trumpet. Is that ringing any bells for anyone? Yeah. What does Paul tell you that the coming of the Lord will be announced by? Okay, by a trumpet. Then, a nation, Day of Atonement, is atoned for in a single day. That ringing bells for anyone. Okay, all Israel will be saved. That's the doctrine of the book of Romans. Not to mention the rest of the New Testament. Followed by the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, if Tabernacles is the last on the prophetic calendar, and this is the Feast of John 7 that we're going to study tonight, we better know what Tabernacles is about, right? Well, let's read in Leviticus. This is also found in Numbers 29, if you want to read it there, but I chose to read it here. The Lord said to Moses, by the way, if I went through those feasts too quickly for you or you don't get all of those, I'm going to teach on this a bunch in the future and I will hand out handouts and... We'll go into depth on each one and look at all of the Scriptures for them. But in general, I think you get the idea. God laid out a kind of schematic every year for Israel in their feast. We are seeing, because we're looking at this in the rearview mirror, that we have fulfilled many of them, and yet there are some that are not fulfilled. Okay? Uh, Leviticus 23, verse 32. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh, Month. Now, those of you that don't know, when these dates are given, these times are given in, uh, in the law, the seventh month was not Israel's seventh month. Israel had a calendar long before this was instituted. What happened on Passover, the very first feast? Passover and unleavened bread. We started over. The civil calendar was discarded and an ecclesiastical calendar started. You remember that when uh, in Nisan or Abib, whichever month uh, Passover fell in, God said, this month is to be your first month. Because Christians, because accepting Jesus would be a new beginning for people. Okay, that was the spiritual message. I say that to tell you this. The seventh month here is the seventh month on the religious calendar. You know what month it is on the other calendar? On the civil calendar? The first. Now, that's interesting, and it's interesting because as we see what the fulfillment is, we see that this is the completion of the religious calendar, the completion of the religious purpose, but the first month of the new civil government. Yeah, well, y'all, it'll, it'll set in with you as we go. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites on the fifteenth day of the seventh month of the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles, I'm sorry. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven, seven days, present offerings made to the Lord by fire, and on the eighth day, hold the sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly. Do no regular work. Now get this. Seventh month, the religious calendar, seventh month, the perfection of the feast, the perfection of the religious calendar, that month, we have a feast where for seven days there's going to be sacrifices and all kind of neat things. Again, perfect sacrifice, teaching, all of those things. And on the eighth day, eight is always the number of new beginning in the Bible, we're going to do something new. Make sense? Okay. This, this typology repeats over and over and over. And it's easy to get lost in. So for the next few years, while I'm fortunate enough to have you to teach, we'll repeat it lots. You heard that? A few years. None of you are going anywhere for a few years. Uh, this feast is eight days long. 
seven days of sacrifice, and then on the eighth day, something special, something new. These are the Lord's appointed feast, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing offerings made to the Lord by fire. The burnt offering and grain offering, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. Whose feast are these? The Lord's. He didn't say they were Israel's feast. He didn't say that they were a few select people's feast. He said they belonged to the Lord. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbath, in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all of the free will offerings you give to the Lord. In addition to all of the law, in addition to everything else that you've promised, in addition to everything else in your life, these feasts must take place. That's literally what he's saying. Okay? I ask you a question as we're talking about this. Then did the feast apply to Christians today? If they are the Lord's and they're above and beyond the law, do they apply today? Sure they do. Now, that's to be balanced by Paul's statements that one guy seems one day holy, another guy another, and to him it is holy. I'm not telling you that you have to rush to Jerusalem to do this. And of course, in Christ, we find fullness and all these things. But don't think these feasts don't apply to us. Of course they do. You're not under a law. There's no penalty for not keeping this feast. But can you learn from it? Of course. Would it hurt you to participate in it? Does it mean that you've reverted to Judaism and rejected Jesus to participate in these feasts? Not at all. They're the Lord's feast. That didn't make you a Jew. They belong to the Lord. You're participating in something that's the Lord's. All right, now that's my view on it. If you disagree, you can shoot me after church. Okay? So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you've gathered the crops of the land. When does this happen? After you've gathered the crops. Now, I, I'm no farmer. Okay? The only thing I know about agriculture at all is a little bit being raised around my father's ranch and in the area seeing crops and then studying the Word. So if it didn't grow in South Texas or I didn't read about it in the Word, I don't know about it. Okay? So don't ask me about hibiscus or any other flowers or ask me to point into a field and tell you whether it's cotton or wheat. I can't do it. But when I started to study this, I thought, how do we have two feasts of ingatherings? And they're not called that. But Passover is a harvest time too. Not Passover, uh, Pentecost is a harvest time. And then here we are, six months have passed and we have another harvest time. I found out there was an early and late harvest in Israel. You know what? Because I didn't know anything about agriculture and this was taught to people that understood agriculture, I understood the spiritual before I ever understood the natural. It was the other way around for them. They looked for two major harvests every year in the natural. And then the spiritual came. For me, I understood that we were receiving a harvest from the Gentiles and a first fruits from the Jews. And one day, there would be an end time harvest from not only the world, but also the Jews. Two harvests separated by a long season of work. I didn't know that. Now I do. But you see it in the Word, huh? He was teaching them through something that was natural in their lives that was occurring. This feast occurs after the crops are gathered. Celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and on the eighth day also is a day of rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. During the Feast of Ingathering, what do you do? You take fruits and produce from things that grow in Israel, and you show them off. The Word teaches us that God has entrusted you with something. He's given you talents. He's treated you like a vine or a tree, and He is coming back expecting something. Fruit. Some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Y'all remember those parables? Now we're talking about a time after the crops when we're there to do what? Present our fruit before the Lord. Y'all see that? What a special time. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths. If you study that word, you'll find out that literally means tents or temporary shelters. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed feast of the Lord. Okay, so we have seven feasts. We have four that occur in the spring, three that occur in the fall. The spring feast, 
uh, initiate a harvest and end with Passover, the end gathering of the early harvest. The fall feast, initiate a harvest and end with the Feast of Tabernacles, the final harvest for the year, and then it's completed and we go into something new. This is not all that unlike a spiritual outline for what God is taking His people through. So if we are in the Feast of Tabernacles and we're reading about this today, understand this was an important, significant event in Jesus' life. The day He showed up on, what He said, what He did was important. Now, if you don't know, just to cover this, Agriculture was one thing, but now we have this whole issue of booths and tents and Egypt and all that. What's that about? If this was an agricultural feast, something that revolved around ingathering of crops, what is all this stuff about booths? Well, it's two things. One is, if you're out in the fields and you're ingathering crops, you're not at home sleeping in your bed, right? And it's a second thing. When Israel came out of Egypt... They lived in temporary dwellings for a period of years before they were brought into the promised land that would symbolize the kingdom of God on earth. Now, you guys have experienced a time period of uh, unleavened bread. You've gone through your house. You've examined yourself. You found out that you had yeast you couldn't do anything about. So you accepted a Passover lamb. Then we saw this Passover lamb, this lamb that was slain, raised up as the first fruit of a harvest. He's the first one to erase from the dead, proving that there will be more like him come out of the field. We've experienced Pentecost. We've seen the ingathering of a church, a church forming around the world, and Jesus gathering them by his Spirit. Then we've entered into a six-month period where we're waiting for the remaining feast. We're remain, waiting for the remaining fulfillment of God's prophetic plan. We're all waiting specifically for a trumpet to sound. Isn't it interesting that the next feast is the Feast of Trumpets? We're all waiting to see Israel, the nation, saved. After trumpets came the Day of Atonement. And lastly, we are waiting to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So what is Tabernacles? What is this business about booths in Egypt? This is the time period where each of us are in temporary dwellings that Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 5, a tent. And we are waiting for a permanent building from God. We are in transition between Egypt that we left and the promised land, the kingdom of God on earth, that is yet to come. And it's symbolized through a seven-day period where we would live in booths, followed by an eighth day where something new happened. Y'all see the symbolism there? We'll teach on this lots and lots more, but first go back to John 7. <laughs> yeah, this is Daniel Crafts Fair in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Uh, so this is one of the great feasts. We have already had two Passover feasts um, mentioned in the book of John. One in John 2, one in John 5. Uh, we're six months from the time that Jesus healed that paralytic by the pool of, of Shalom. You remember where he said, uh, pick up your mat and walk, and it was on a Sabbath and they were mad? Six months after. Six months after. Four Passovers are mentioned in, uh, in the book of John. The last one's the one that he dies on. It's how you get a three-and-a-half-year ministry. Okay, so picking up in verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking... Where is that man? Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. That's interesting, huh? So who is it that's saying good things and bad things about it? Some of the Jews, but there was apparently a big crowd that was for him. If you were scared to say negative things about him that are to help change your conception about what Israel was like in the time of Jesus. They didn't all hate him. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. Now, this is where I'm telling you. There's a reason for this. And I, don't, I haven't fully wrapped my mind around it yet. I'm praying Jesus reveal it. I can tell you there's a different number of animals sacrificed. There are different events halfway through the feast than in the beginning. I'll search it out and I'll study, but you should do the same thing. 
There's a reason He shows up on this day. But let's look at what He did. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from Him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. Now, I mentioned John 5 earlier and all of that because Jesus hadn't done a miracle at this feast yet. And the miracles that he's been doing prior to this are in Galilee. He's not in Galilee. He's in Jerusalem. So what's he talking about? They are still mad about something that occurred six months before, the healing of a crippled guy on a Sabbath day. That was the last miracle he did in their presence. And they were mad about it. That gives you an idea where the leadership's heart was. Okay? They didn't care about the people. They cared about retaining power. Not all that different than today, huh? I did one miracle and you were all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcised a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgment. Y'all follow his line of reasoning? Guys, you don't want a child not to, not to be obedient to the law of Moses. So even though you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, you'll circumcise a child on the Sabbath so that the kid can keep the law, to make him whole so that he won't be unclean, so that it doesn't look like he's in sin but I can't heal a whole human being on the Sabbath without you being upset? Stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgment. This takes us back to the brothers' earlier statement. In fact, it takes us back to the difference between the way the carnal mind works and the spiritual mind. See, the reason the Bible can make the claim in Corinthians 2 that the spiritual man makes judgments about all things is because the Spirit of God makes right judgment. What do you do with the verse in Matthew 7, 1 that says, Judge not, lest you be judged? What do you do with that? Jesus said, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. So then, do we judge or do we not judge? The answer is, you don't judge by mere appearance. You don't make judgments like the brothers did, simply in the natural mind. Well, Dave, you want to be somebody famous, you need to go where all the people are. Is there anything wrong with that? No, that's probably smart but it wasn't God's will. There is a difference between the wisdom of man and the spiritual leading of God. They're often in direct opposition to each other. And Jesus' word to them is, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. He's going to go on to teach on this several more times in the book of John. He's going to tell you that the way that he does it, you know, I'm, I'm the example guy, so you want to do it like me? Do it like this. I only do what I see my father doing, Okay? Again, always taking us back to the garden before man chose what was right and wrong for himself and he depended upon God to do it. These themes are consistent throughout John. Okay, Always taking us right back there. At, the, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Now, how would they know that? One, Jesus has said it. But two, how, how would they associate that? Apparently, there's a plot among some of the Jewish leadership already to off him. Why would they do that? Not do anything but good things. Why would they do it? Come on, it's the obvious answer. You already know it. Consider him a rival for power. He's a rival for power. But let me ask you something. If all the Jews were against him, if all the Jews hated him, if they were all God-hating people, if they were all the mean, evil people that medieval Christianity has made them out to be, why would he even be a rival for power? Why would he be a threat? Because the people were going to him in masses. They were listening to him above the teachers. They were drawn to him. All of a sudden, the service across the street is bigger than your service. Okay, I'm just trying to get you to have the right perspective in mind. Jesus was not an unpopular fellow. These things were not done in a corner. All of Israel was going to him in throngs. 
This is how you have a crowd of more than 5,000 people that Jesus feeds. And then they follow Him, searching for Him to another side of the lake. He's intentionally turning them away at times. These are huge crowds for the day. Think about that. Okay. At that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this man, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. So what are they really, what are they really saying? We know that they don't like him. We know they want to kill him, but here he is in public. They're not doing anything. See, this was a problem. It was a real problem for the people. If he really is bad, why don't they take authority and kill him? Maybe he's not bad. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Now, you guys are all Bible scholars. Can anybody tell me where that verse is in the Bible? When the Christ comes, nobody will know where he's from. Can you give me a clue where that's derived from? It's not. It's not there. In fact, the Bible goes through great lengths, through multiple different people, living in different times, writing from different occupations and different locations to tell you where the Christ would be from. And yet we had a misconception at the time of Jesus among the common people that nobody would know where the Christ was from. Now, I wonder at this Feast of Trumpets that we're all waiting for, if people don't have some misconceptions about something that the Bible never said, but that we've accepted because they're sold in books at Walmart. I'm just curious. I don't make any... I'm trying to point out truth and let the error fall where it may. Then Jesus, still teaching... And by the way, let me show you a couple of places where the Bible does say where Jesus would be from. Okay, Where did they think Jesus was from? Yeah, this guy's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth, you know? Doesn't the Bible say we don't know where he'll be from? Uh, look at Micah for me. Uh, you can hang a left from here. We're going to be in Micah 5.2 for a second. I'll get you a page number in just a minute. Or whoever gets there first, holler it out. Like that word, holler? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Micah 5.2 is on page 1035 in the Thompson Chain. But you, Bethlehem, Ephraim, Ephraim, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. And we go on and on and on. There's going to be a ruler. He's going to come out of... Bethlehem. Incidentally, 2 Samuel 7 says the same thing. Not only out of Bethlehem, but from the line of David. Now, we're going to find out, though, that the Pharisees knew this very well. But there's a problem. Who knows that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? His mama and his daddy. Because what happened? There was a census. Now, you think, golly, could God do something holy through wicked people? He used Augustus Caesar. I mean, we're talking about a type of the Antichrist. And he used Herod, both, in his plan. Because those people, Mary and Joseph, had to return to Bethlehem to comply with a Roman census. And at that time, Jesus was born in the very city that had been prophesied about a thousand years before his birth. He would be born, even though they normally lived in Nazareth. Isn't that interesting? Uh, by the way, turn to Isaiah. I like to turn to Isaiah every time we get together just so you'll get to know where it is. Isaiah 9. Say, well, the Scripture says it would be from Bethlehem. So, of course, they were confused. Jesus is from Galilee. I mean, Galilee, doesn't the Scripture say we won't know where he'll come from? Or if we do know, it'll be Bethlehem, right? Well, then why does Isaiah 9 tell us? Nevertheless, this is page 766. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, He has humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the future, He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. Galilee's going to get honored. Well, how? How is Galilee going to get honored? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those of you that have been sitting under this teaching for a while, when John refers to light, what's he referring to? Life. Life. Wow. Consistent even in Isaiah. Watch. The people walking in darkness 
have seen a great life. On those living in the land of the shadow of death. And the life or light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. Harvest. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor. Now, Jews thought that the rod of their oppressor was Rome. But what's the rod of the oppressor of all mankind? What is the yoke upon all man's shoulders? Death. And Jesus came to fix that. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. Why? Because Galilee of the Gentiles? For to us, or unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Leave your finger in Isaiah and go back to John. So did the Scripture tell us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem? Yeah. Did it tell us that He would also be associated with Galilee? Yeah. But the people thought, we won't know where the Christ will come from. Scripture tells you very clearly that the gospel is about the resurrection. It's about the kingdom of God being set up on earth. And yet all of Christianity today is interested in something totally different. Doesn't the Scripture tell us that we'll all fly away? Does it? Hmm. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Isn't this interesting? If you were Jesus, what would you do? Knowing that they have this misconception, what would you do? Hey guys, I was born in Bethlehem. You remember Augustus issued a census. I was here. I was born in an inn right over there. And yeah, I was raised in Galilee. That's true. Haven't you ever read what Isaiah said? But he didn't do it. He simply spoke the truth and then expected them to hear the inner witness from God. And if they didn't, they just didn't. Boy, we could learn a lot from him, couldn't we? Yeah, how often do we sit and beg people to understand? Try to convince them. Give them a gift certificate and donuts. Watch their kids for them and feed them pizzas on Wednesdays just to sit and listen. Speak the truth. Let the chips fall where they may. Don't beg anybody to be saved. There's a difference between wanting all men to be saved and cheapening the gospel to do it. Jesus never did that. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. What a powerful statement. See, Jesus didn't go earlier. The brothers said he should go. Indeed, it was a feast that he probably should be at. But his time hadn't come, so he didn't go. Then his time came and he went. So when his life was in jeopardy, wasn't a problem because he was perfectly in God's will. You see the difference? Had he gone earlier, he didn't go because he knew they were trying to kill him. Had he been one day out of God's will, perhaps they would have succeeded. But because he was perfectly in God's will, his life was preserved. Isn't that great? What a lesson for us. How important is it that you hear the will of God? Now, I, I'm harping on this subject. and I don't know if I'll get to it because John 8 starts with a statement John 8, 1 and 2 tells us it's morning time. Then John 8, 12 tells us that Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. You know why? Well, I'll tell you later. <laughs> For 1990? No, I'm kidding. Um, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? They're perplexed. We believe there's a Messiah coming. Will He really do more than this guy's done? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about Him. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest Him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I will go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but, when, <laughs> but you will not find me. And where I am, 
You cannot come. This is so important that you get this here. This is so consistent throughout the book of John. He doesn't say, I'm going away, and when I go away, you won't be able to find me where I'm going. He says it in the present tense, where I am, you cannot come. He does this consistently. It's not that he's using bad English. He's doing this intentionally. Jesus is somewhere even while he's right there. Physically, they can see him, but where is Jesus also spiritually? He's always in the presence of God because there is no separation. And what he's telling them is, I'm going away to do something and you won't be able to see me. And where I am, you can't come. It's the only place, and I know this sounds science fiction-ish, that's because all of those movies have ripped off the gospel. There was one place in all of the creation that no human being could go except a perfect male child. And that was the right hand of the Father. Nobody had ever been there. Nobody could ever go there except Him. And He's telling them, you're going to look for me and you can't find me. But where I am, He was there then because He was in perfect communication with the Father. He does this again in John 14. He does it several times. He speaks about it in the present tense. You can ponder on that for a while. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Listen where their heart always is. This is so funny. Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. They're always worried that, number one, is he the Messiah or not? And then number two, why does he keep talking about Gentiles? I hope he's not going to go teach those dogs. They were upset about the Gentile oppression. Daniel had said that there would be four Gentile kingdoms to rule the earth. Anybody familiar with the book of Daniel? Daniel 3, Daniel 7, Daniel 9. All the way through the book of Daniel, we have a repeating pattern. There will first be the Babylonians. They'll be followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire, followed by the Roman Empire. In Jesus' day, who was ruling the earth? Rome. So if you were a student of the Word and you knew there would be four Gentile kingdoms that would rule the earth, and this was painfully clear from the book of Daniel, what would happen, according to Daniel 7, to the Roman Empire? The mountain of the Lord would crush it. There would be one who would come, who would be enthroned in this glorious thing, his court would set, and the kingdoms of the world would be handed over to the Jews. That's what they were waiting for. They're waiting for him to do that to Rome. And he's not talking about it. Instead, he's talking about going away somewhere they can't come and he's already there. Okay? That's why they're upset. And so when he starts to hint that he's going to go do something among the Gentiles, they get really furious. That's also why they beat up Paul every time he was out sharing with the Gentiles. Because all of God's promises centered around Israel inheriting the earth. Now, isn't it funny that we who are the recipients of all of these promises about Israel inheriting the earth, we Gentiles who they didn't want to receive the gospel, that have now received the gospel, we've changed it and made it about something other than inheriting the earth? Isn't that peculiar? The devil can't get you one way. He seems to work around some other way. He's deluded the message. But God's going to raise up a generation of people, one life at a time, that will take the real message out. I promise that. And not just from here, from all over the place. Little garages all over the United States, probably. All over the world. Verse 37. This is what I've been hoping to get to the whole time and I'm running out of time. But On the last and greatest day of the feast, what day is that? Eighth day. New beginning. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up in a loud voice, stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him before we get to John's explanation of that. Jesus didn't go to the feast right away. There was a time appointed by His Father when He was supposed to be there. He got there in the middle of the feast and He confronted false teaching. Waiting for the last day of the feast, He did something special. Now, it's interesting, this last day of the feast. What they did on this last day of the feast was they sang Isaiah 12. Did anybody keep their finger in Isaiah? Oh, finally, one brother did. Kept his finger in Isaiah. I'll read this to you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. <laughs> Your finger went to sleep. All right. Let me, this is what they're singing. All of Israel is singing this at this feast. Now, Feast of Tabernacles is found in Ezra. It's found in uh, Zechariah. 
It's found in Numbers and it's found in Leviticus. Okay? Nowhere, as far as I'm concerned, did they ever mention that this was being sung. But we know from the Jews today who have preserved the Word of God for us that they've always done this. Okay? So this is where it benefits to learn from the culture of the Jews. Isaiah 12, verse 1. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now we got a young man there whose name means Yahweh's source of salvation. And he's telling the people, as water's being poured out, come drink of me. He's calling himself the well of salvation. Yahweh's source of salvation at a time when something peculiar is happening. Young, read the rest of Isaiah 12 some other time, okay? Here's what's peculiar, the happening. We have a golden vessel. What does gold always represent in the Bible? Divinity. With water in it, symbolizing the water of salvation, the water of life. And the priests are walking out and they're singing this song, Isaiah 12, that the Lord said to sing. And there's 12 earthen vessels symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're pouring the water a little bit into each vessel until it's overflowing. What do you think that symbolizes? It's God pouring out His salvation on Israel. It's this ingathering that we're waiting. It's the end of the temporary dwelling being filled with something golden so that your dwelling would change. I mean, this is talking about the resurrection. And Jesus stands up and says, If anybody is thirsty, let him come and drink of me. Now, John adds for us in John 7.37. What's it say? 7.38 Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that moment, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. See, once Jesus was glorified, then the Spirit could be poured out into people just like Yahweh's salvation had been poured out of that golden vessel into the twelve earthen vessels, symbolizing there's a day coming when you will be glorified. You're in the Feast of Tabernacles now. You're waiting for the ingathering to finish. You're in temporary dwellings waiting to have God poured into you so that you will be glorified and the harvest will be complete and God's prophetic calendar is done. You see, this is consistent all the way through the Scripture and the Jews did this every year. So when he stood up and he said this, they understood at the very least this guy saying, he's our only way to get saved. Who had Moses said would come that would tell people something that they had to listen to or be cursed? The prophet. Listen to what they say here. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. See, they understood what he was saying. They may not have liked it, but they understood what he was saying. This is the guy that was to come, that if we didn't listen to his every word, would be cut off, because, as his name says, he is Yahweh's only source of salvation. See, Jesus had to be there at a certain point in this feast when that was happening so that they would look, they would see what was going on, they would hear what he was saying, and they would put one and two together. And they did. Now, here we are, dumb Gentiles, reading it, and we have no idea about their culture. To us, we're thankful that John writes, by this he meant the Spirit. Because if he hadn't written it, written it, you wouldn't know it. But as we study the culture that the Word was given to us in, there's a reason for it. These Feast teach you about God's plan. And part of His plan is that you would dwell in a tent for a time period and it would be followed once the harvest is complete by a glorification and a finished body, a finished building. Go, go read 2 Corinthians 5 and see Paul pick up on this exact topic. Then go read Corinthians 15. You'll hear this exact topic. See, the Jews that had received the Spirit, they understood this. It's just foreign to us. But we'll, we'll learn it as we learn about the Jewish king, right? Okay. Y'all are you following me at all? Yeah. Some of you are. Some of you are sleeping. Some of you, I, I understand. Okay. I, I will end here real soon because I've been preaching about an hour. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Christ. 
You remember in John 2, I told you all we had three distinct, separate, messianic expectations? They were confused. You see it here. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Some in the crowd are saying, we won't know where he comes from. Others are saying, how can he come from Galilee? He's got to come from Bethlehem. That's why I read you all those other Scriptures. The Scripture said both. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The people were divided because of Jesus. We have this idea, if I'll just receive Jesus, there'll be peace. Receiving Jesus brings division. The first thing that happened to me was I got thrown out of my own house. The very first thing that happened to me was I got thrown out of my house. Matthew, was your experience much different? Mm, uh, I didn't get thrown out of my house, I got rejected by my family. Rejected by the family. My best friend in the Lord, same experience. You know, the Scripture accepting Jesus brings division because it forces people to pick a side. And what did Jesus say to us brothers? Why was His time not right and theirs was? Well, I'll always accept you. Anytime's right. But my life convicts the world of sin. It points out their evil, so they hate me. When you get in Jesus, you can expect that the people that are around you will be divided from you. That's okay. What does Jesus tell you to do with those that hate you? Love them. Love them. What better place to start than your own family? Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief... I'm sorry, verse 44. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Isn't that interesting? Second time they wanted to kill him in the same speech and couldn't. Verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Doesn't that sound like arrogant aristocracy? What, what was their proof that he was not the Christ? None of the rulers have believed in them. Have we? And then who speaks up? Who's the one guy that has gone to Jesus and the seeds of belief are starting in his heart? Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They were so arrogant because they thought they knew the Word. And yet, they didn't know all of the Word. They were missing it. What did we find out came from Galilee? A special child, huh? A special child and the government would be on his shoulders and he'd reign on David's throne forever. Oh, he's born in Bethlehem, but he'd come from Galilee. Didn't I read you all that? They lashed out and said, these people are under a curse. None of the rulers have believed. And yet, God had already started working on one of the rulers. But he didn't yet have the faith to stand up for Jesus. He came once to Jesus at night so that they wouldn't know. And Jesus talked to him. It's been working on him now for more than a year. Well over a year. Almost two years it's been working on him. And now he's in a meeting and they say, none of us have believed, have we? And the seeds of faith are sparking around. But it fails him. He says, well, does our law condemn him, condemn him without hearing from him first? Not yet ready to say, I'm one of him, I believe but saying, hey, could we talk about it some more? Do you know when his faith finally comes through? When they kill him. When they kill him. When the feast of Passover is truly fulfilled. And then he sees the feast of first fruits fulfilled. Nicodemus sees that because he put him in the grave that he came out of. Okay, now I'm going to close here, but I promise to tell you something about John 8. We're going to cover John 8, but I'm just going to tell you about it. In John 8, first couple verses says that it's about dawn when Jesus appears at the temple. He withdraws and now it's about dawn and He shows up at the temple. Okay? You know what they're doing? This was the eighth day. Now, the next morning, the ninth morning. Okay? It's uh, about dawn. What, what is dawn? Dawn's when dark is fading away and light is coming up, right? Well, there are these special candles, these enormous golden candles in the front of the temple. Do you know what they symbolized? the fire that the Israelites followed in the desert by night. Okay? What was the desert symbolic of as far, or their time in the desert as far as the Feast of Tabernacles is concerned? 
this time in the, the tents. This is their temporary dwelling on the way to the promised land. So we've got the next day, these big candles, they're flaming through the night. So all Israel knows to look to the temple, look to the priesthood. They will show you the way to God. And as those are being extinguished because the sun is coming up and the spirit of the sun will rise with healing in his wings, Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. You want to follow God? Come through me. He's telling them in a way that they understood in the clearest possible fashion. I'll teach on it some more in John 8. You've been looking to these things. They were symbolic of me. It's me who's the light. Just like he had just told them to come and drink of him. He's telling them, I'm the fulfillment of tabernacles. You're in that time period now? Follow me. Drink of me. And when I'm glorified, you'll get what I have. That's what the book of John is teaching. Now, I know that's way beyond the surface. I know that that might be a little much for you to chew on tonight. Why we'll teach this book a whole, whole bunch. But I want to give you each a little something to think about for the week. All right, that's a little over an hour, so stand up and we will uh, we'll pray.